There it goes. All right, this is, uh, my name is Stephen Epstock. I am the coordinator for the Committee on Discipleship Ministries of Presbyterian Church in America. Many of you probably say, all right, what's that? I don't know what that is. That's fine. Uh, I, we are the committee for, how many of you are PCA? Okay, so a lot of you here are PCA. Uh, we're the committee like Mission to the World or Mission North America, RUF, some people hear about those. Those are the larger committees. Our job at CDM is to work with local churches as they're making disciples in the congregation. So children's ministry, youth ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, older adult ministry. And so I travel around, what we like to say is we want to strengthen the church by connecting people to people and people to resources. So. Why am I teaching this? Well, uh, earlier you had an RTS professor from RTS Global that was dressed really nicely. Now you have an RTS professor that looks like this. I've worn this sweatshirt all week. Some of you probably know that. I don't think you can smell it yet, but that's that's me. I, I basically what we're going to present today is an aspect of a course I teach at RTS Atlanta in leadership and discipleship. And today we have with us one of the students from that class, Oscar Palin. And so, uh, y'all clap, yeah. Oscar. Yeah. yeah. So basically, yeah, you did, and you probably missed this one. So I want to who's an Oscar with that. So, uh, Oscar was in our class, and he did a fine job in our class. So uh, Adam Kopic was also in the class. So. But what we want to do is really, um, my PhD is in education, in the area of adult education. And one of the things I've learned in talking to student ministry leaders is how you work through this idea of what aspects of adult learning theory apply in students. And how do you, uh, in my case, I'm also working with those who work with adults. And how do they, uh, how do they, be more fruitful in their education and experience and their whole learning process. So let me check and see how many sleepers we have here. How many of you have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a PhD in the area of education? Oh, good. So I don't have anybody, you know, I've, done, I've taught this material before. Indeed, me. The latest research said this, and I said, I don't care. So <laughs> I do care, but I'm presenting it as I've learned it's based on not only what the theory is, but also experientially what I've seen. As we get started, let me open with prayer, and then I want you to begin to think about your student ministry, and in particular, your large group teaching time. It could be a Sunday school class. It could be if you do a large group, small group model in your midweek or whatever the case may be. But we're going to think about that because that's what we're going to address now in our time together. So let me pray for us. Father, as we begin this time, as we explore this topic together, we pray that you will guide our thinking. Lord, I thank you for these, your servants who are your instruments in the lives of students. Lord, I pray that you will use this time as they reflect on those you've called them to serve, as they reflect on the context in which they serve. Lord, you will open their eyes to the great things that they can do and learn and 
how they can be instruments of your redemptive work in the lives of their students. Jesus, be present with us as we spend this time together. For we come in your name. Amen. Okay, as you think through your large group, if you have your little notebook or you got your computer, I want you to think about these three categories, which is, I find this as I talk to teachers, not only student ministry, but also adult teachers. As you think about your large group, and you're preparing your lesson, you're delivering your lesson, what would you say your goal is? And you might say, not that it's always one thing, it might be this one time and this another time. How do you think you land in those three categories? Just broad, you know, 20%, 80%, whatever. Knowledge acquisition, and that would be, I'm trying to get them to know information that they did not know before. For example, I want them to understand this passage of Scripture more clearly. Moral behavior, I'm just... We've got a bunch of you know, people who are living in an ungodly culture and I want them to live the right way. Or spiritual formation. I'm wanting them to grow in their understanding of God and their experience of God, their experience of Jesus Christ, His love for us, His desire to be at work in our lives. What some people call, I tend to put this, the, the relational component of our life with God. Is this what it should be? No, I'm, I'm what you, not, I'm thinking, think about your experience and what you do and where, what's your go-to things when you think. And it might be one, it might be three, it might be two. Just, I want you to, this is your, this is called self-assessment. <laughs> sort of, what are you thinking about where you go? Now, Here's what I want you to think about. Is your goal transformation? And I'm going to put to you that this is the biblical goal of discipleship. And transformation involves all of these three. And so you may be in a situation, a learning experience, where based on the context, it could be the people that are there, it could be the text that's before you, whatever. You may be emphasizing one of these three, but your goal needs to be the transformation. Now, here's... I want you to... I do this in a seminar I do with parents. The end result of the educational experience will reflect what you value. Or you could say this, as you are making disciples, the end result is going to reflect what you value as the disciple maker. You could go here, and this is based on something that Brian Habig, some of you may know Brian Habig in Greenville, South Carolina. He said this at a conference we had at CDM a number of years ago. Moral, successful, well-educated, well-rounded. When I present this in a parenting conference, and a parenting seminar, I usually leave off this part and say, how many of you are really want these things for your kids? And I'll go, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to be there. 
Um, and is there anything per se wrong with moral, successful, well-educated, well-rounded? No. Which side looks most like a Pharisee? Pharisees were very moral. Pharisees were very successful, very well-educated, and very well-rounded. And Pharisees are in hell. The Pharisees of Jesus. Unless they repented, and there were some that repented. But yet, if you come over here, this is soft-hearted, repentant, biblically trained, Christ-centered, globally-minded. Now, what do all these mean? Soft-hearted. That means you're... Uh, soft-hearted would do, be with your... It has a deal willingness to learn, willingness to be open to other people, willingness to engage other people. Repentant means you recognize your, your deep need constantly for the love of Christ, for the mercy of Christ, for the work of God in your life. You're biblically trained. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? Go ahead. Y'all can speak out loud. I know you're doing a lot of lectures, but these are no trick questions. Go ahead. Throw them out. If you love me, you will obey me. Be my disciples. Abide in me. In order to do that, you have to know what he says and do what he says. Christ-centered means you recognize and Christ-centered, you know, we, we use that, we throw that term out. It means that our acceptance before God is based on Christ and not on ourselves. Our obedience is Christ living through us. It's not something that, well, he'll just help me to be a better person to sort of gear up myself. It's Christ at work in me. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ-centered. Globally minded realizes that God's kingdom is not just in our little context. It's much broader than that. Now, Oscar knows this because we covered this before. Do you give up this if you pursue this? No. But you put this in a proper context if your target is here. But you also might have a kid for some reason who you know, just maybe they've got learning disabilities and they will never be successful by the world standard. But they can still be here. And they will be loved by their Heavenly Father. They may never be able to be as well educated as the world, but here they will be educated in knowing about God, which is the true end of education. And so that's where my challenge to you is think through your own educational training, think through what you're doing with your students. What is your goal? Here's another question. What would you say is the goal of the parents, of the students, in your program? Part of your task as a student ministry leader is not just to focus on the children, but you're trying to bring the parents to the same mentality. 
the same goal. Because you're discipling not only the students, but also their families. Questions, comments, pushback. Yes, sir, ma'am. Just kind of a comment going on what you said. Um, and also by way of encouragement. Um, we often, as you pastors, think, yeah, we're supposed to stick with the people from sixth grade to the twelfth grade. And, and that's, and we also view in the church that, oh, someone moves out of youth ministry into another pastoral call, and we go, oh, yeah, he got, he got promoted. He got promoted to a real pastor. <laughs> He's a real pastor. Um, but really, we have one of the broadest pastoral roles in the church. And one way I always try to emphasize this with my families is that every meeting, every parent meeting we have, I tell them, think of it in the superhero world. Mm-hmm. You are Batman, parents. Me as youth pastor, I am sidekick, I'm Robin. It's not the other way around. You are the primary disciple makers of your children, and part of my role, a major part of my role, is to equip you and to help you do that work um, in any right you can. There is no biblical command for student ministry leaders to disciple students. There is a biblical command for parents to disciple their kids. One of the things that I find in our children's ministry, how many of y'all do sort of a joint children and youth? Do we have any? Okay. The One of the things, and I think this holds true for student ministry too, in children and student ministry, those areas of ministry are the ones in the local church that really have the most multi-generational connection of all the ministries. If you count... Who are you ministering to age-wise as well as their parents and the volunteers that are active in your program? And so it's you have a high calling, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. I understand that. All right, let's focus on this text. And this is something that was brought up. Uh, Dr. Anderson brought it up. And we have appealed to it before. Paul in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I put to you that this is a key discipleship text in Scripture because it has the idea of this living sacrifice that comes through transformation that begins with renewal of the mind. There is a cognitive element to our transformation. And that's many times what we're thinking about in the teaching experience is what are we doing? How are we appealing to that mind? But it's more than just the mind. It involves everything. And this is where, think about where Romans 12 falls in the book. It's a wonderful book of doctrine, but you have Romans 1 through 11 is the doctrine and doxology. And then you have 13 through 15, the practice that flows out of the doctrine. And I put to you this, understanding doctrine must lead to life change. What I tell elders 
You can teach doctrine, but if it doesn't change your life, you haven't taught the doctrine correctly. If you're not living differently because of what you studied in that doctrine, if it makes you a more harsh person, or a meaner person, or a more judgmental person, you don't understand the doctrine. Because doctrine humbles us. Reformed doctrine humbles us. Because it's all about God and not about us. And so it leads to life change and transformation involves that change. One thing, you probably heard this, we know which makes us somebody and then we do. Changing, transforming our mind makes us more into the image of Christ and then we act out of that. Some of y'all may have seen this. It's a variation on what some people call the cross chart. And it's this idea, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with Scotty Smith, those of you who are in Scotty's session. It, it, there is a progressiveness to our sanctification doctrinally, but many times it's fits and starts. Three steps forward, two steps back. It, it's going back, but there is a definite change in as you're growing through time, you're growing in your understanding of God, your understanding of self, and then as you do that, as you see how great God is and how far you are from His standard, Christ must necessarily get bigger. And not only that, but if your eyes are on Christ, you will grow in Christ's likeness and your heart for God, your heart for others, will necessarily grow. And so that is what we're hoping to see, not only in our lives as we're leaders, but also in the lives of our students. The problem is, in many cases, we try to change this line. Or... Humanists, they change this understanding of self. They're not willing to see, see, go deeper into the depths of their sin and shame. But if you're honest, Christ will just get bigger. That's the gospel. And that's what it's our privilege to share with these students. Now, as you look at children's ministry, and this is sort of the developmental, this is broad strokes, as you think about progression cognitively with children and then how your training or how your education experience, how you do what you do, will change here as well in light of what's happening in the child. So you need to consider your audience. What's happening in them? Now here's a question. How many of you are dealing with 6th grade through 12th grade. Oh my goodness. So you have a challenge. 6th <laughs> graders are what? They're 12, right? 12, 13, that ballpark? Well, they're in this. They're moving into adult learning. But your seniors are how old? 17 or 18. And so they're already in that adult education that's, that's their mode of learning. Well, what you have here is, as you go in this cognitive development, what I've found, and this played out for us in the churches I've served, 
This 9 to 11, they begin to grasp the abstract. In some cases in our learning environment today, in our culture, this is starting to move down a little bit. And so what we used to do is when we were calling for a membership class, traditionally, and when I lived in Montgomery, Alabama, they had one of our PCA churches, they wouldn't have a new members class until the kid was like 16. What, is young Matt, what was Young Meadows when you got there, Adam? Uh, we would allow like down to third grade. Oh, okay. So they made a change. It hadn't always been that way at Young Meadows. Well, I'll be honest. It's back and forth. Oh, it's back and forth. But a lot of people said that, well, we're just going to make sure they make the work. But really, the cognitively, they're able to engage with, understand, and commit to the concepts even at this 9 through 11. Sometimes you can find a child 6 to 8 who is able to do it. But you have to deal with them individually. Because you wouldn't. Where are they cognitively? Where are they in their ability to grasp what's going on? And many times, this is where you can really minister to the families as you help them analyze what's going on and where their child is. Understanding how they are developing and what they can grasp. Now, questions on this? Comments on this? Yes, sir? It's in the slides I gave you on your... Uh, on your um, notebook. If you don't, uh, SS stock, if he, I'll write my email up there and you can get it. Um, yes, sir? What, what, what are some ways that you assess the, uh, the ability of a child or a person to have abstract? You know, in a school, you get, probably get some of the tests, right? Uh huh. Usually, if you have a small group aspect to your ministry and you're doing discussion questions, you begin to see that they're able to go deeper. Part of it, and hopefully we'll get to this part, when you need to design your questions to try to probe that, to see if they can go beyond just information regurgitation and begin to, what's, what's the principle behind this? What, what's Jesus getting to? And they're trying to, it's, or their ability to connect the dots. Yeah. So, like, you might study a passage and ask them, can um, you list 10 to 20 facts about the passage? And then that question of, can you draw principles from those things that you observe? Is that kind of. Yeah. Here are the facts. Or, or you could say, why do you think God put those facts in the text? What's he addressing? What issues? What's happening in there? So you're trying to get them to look just beyond the words on the paper to the concepts that lie behind. Maybe what was in the author's mind as he was writing. And that shows that their ability to go beyond is, is developing. Other questions, comments? All right, as we go here, Danny Mitchell, some of you may know Danny. Danny told me this years ago. Is I was Danny, give me some advice on student ministry. And he says, key thing, I think all those who work with youth or students need to know, youth are not just objects of the Great Commission. They're agents of the Great Commission. All right. Not just objects, but agents. 
This is where your role in the church is so key because you're beginning to help, and you're going to have to help your parents see this, that they have to move from just being the soak to actually doing it. One of the things in our children's ministry, our children's ministry coordinator, Sue Jakes, for years she said she would tell student ministry pastors, you need to be looking for the people in your ministry that they can go serve in the children's ministry because that's a natural place where they can go. And it begins to move from, I'm not just an object to be discipled, but I am one through whom God will make disciples. And that's a key thing. Now, the problems in what I've seen, not only in student ministry workers, but also in elders who are working and overseeing student ministry, is the neglect of youth ministry is either they're trying to use children's ministry paradigms in a youth context, or they're jumping immediately to adult education paradigms and ignoring the fact that the students are in a period of transition and they're moving into that. And so you want to challenge them in these ways, but you have to be patient because it's going to be a process as they're going to that, that type of thing. So go to your learning process that you learned in the POM. You're teaching. You're demonstrating. Observation. Evaluation. What's the final E? Whatever the final E is. <laughs> Y'all, encouragement. There you go. Thank you very much. Drew a blank up. Did Oscar, did you say that? He said it first. All right, he said it first, but you just copied. You did a great job. I think, you know, I think he did that in class with me, too, you know? Maybe that's how he got his degree. All right, key things. <laughs> key things that you need to know in youth discipleship. I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Community is key. And so one of the things we like to say at, at CDM, our hope is that God will create in the PCA particularly discipleship ministries that are word-based and relationally driven. That you have a relationship with God and a relationship with others in the body of Christ. Or the way our women's ministry puts it, think biblically, live covenantally. And so you are the people in your group, you're a part of them. They may go to a different school, they may have, they may come from a different background, whatever, but they are part of what God is doing in your particular context. You have to move beyond simple recall. This is the biggest change from child learning to teen learning to adult learning, is you're moving towards that, I'm putting things together. And you're examining not only what to think, but how do I think? What, what's going on? What's going into my thought process as I'm not just reacting to the stimuli around me, but I'm being thoughtful, reflective about what I'm doing and why I'm doing. And again, this is a process. This was the hardest thing for me as a parent of teenagers. Why did you do that? I don't know. And, and to some extent, that was right. They really didn't know. But my responsibility was to help them to think through it, to move beyond what, but how. And then also you see this, student ministry. I mean, coming in children's ministry and parents struggle with this, 
They're just wanting to say, let me, let me deal with school life, and let me deal with church life. What you're having to help the student think through is thought life, dating, academics, sports. How does God play with it? Because you play a key role in battling against what we see so much in the church of the sacred-secular divide. Because this is where students are beginning to learn, do I do this God thing on Sunday, and then the rest of the time is my time? Or are you really helping them begin to think about God is working in your life all the time. Now on Sunday, you're coming together, or Wednesday, or wherever it is, you're coming together to celebrate with others in your community, but he's giving you this time together to send you out to the world. The goal being transformation, which leads to greater independence from parents, but greater dependence on God. And in current environment with parents, some parents, especially as they look at a scary culture, this is a scary idea for them. But what you want is differentiation between child and parent, but keep the connection. Now, let me throw a question to you. In your experience, what have you seen that hurts this? What have you seen in students that maybe undermines their desire to have a connection with their parents? What have you seen that affects the differentiation with parents? What have you experienced? Uh, I think the typical thing that I see, like, not that, like, this is not the parents doing something wrong. It is the, like, I'm not there watching, but like having expectations for your children is not a bad thing. Um, but if the child has friends that are um, like a little bit more free to do what they want, and parents are a little bit more like, no, I don't think you can go do that because this like parents with more restrictions tend to, in our ministry, like their kids seem to be more frustrated. More frustrated. They're wanting this, and not. but not giving it, or not receiving it. Yeah. Other things. And see, what happens is when they want this but don't get it, this is effects. I'm just going to break it and I'm going to be free. Yes, sir? The parents don't have a dependence on God, which makes this so scary. Because, the, the, and this, for those of you who are parents, this is hard. Uh, my kid, my youngest child now is 20 years old. And I'm going to send her to Spain next year. Daddy is not happy about that. But that's just, um, it has to happen. But there is a strong connection here. But there has to be differentiation. Otherwise, the child will not mature. And that's a hard lesson for parents. But the way you get them there is you help them say, you're giving your child. But you've never owned your child in the first place. You've always been just a steward of this child. Now you're giving them to God. And as they're differentiating from you, <laughs> this is, if, you've got, if you've got guts, you can say, as you do more of this, 
Your connection with God is going to be stronger because He's the one that's going to make this okay. Others say, yes, sir. I think sometimes kids are afraid to ask their parents hard questions because they know what the answer is going to be, and so they go somewhere else for the explanation. And that's so true. The differentiation is never explored because they're never allowed to ask questions. That that's a very that's a very key thing. And sometimes you become the one that they feel safe to ask the questions to. And then part of your responsibility is say, okay, God's given me this opportunity to help the child differentiate. But then you have to do so in a sense that you're also going to be fostering this connection with your parents. And it may be that you have a later conversation with the parents or say, hey, why don't you ask them about the you know, I don't know what your context would be, but you need to be thinking you can be the instrument to help here, but you also need to be the instrument here. And also, as you're talking to the student, you have to help the student see the value of this, even as they're seeking and pursuing this. Other questions, comments? Good, good statements here. All right, now, this is a busy slide. But this is from David Souza's How the Brain Works. Um, this slide is also in your, your notebook. <coughs> but here's, here's where it is. I'll walk you through it. All right, this right here is the environment. We experience the environment through our five senses. When you're teaching, you're usually going with these two, sight and hearing. Ordinarily, those are the ones that are going to be the ones you're, you're emphasizing the most. But as you're presenting this, there are filters, your sensory register, how your body, your brain, there are filters that put it out. Now, as you're sitting here, peripherally, you've got beautiful things out there, right? But your brain is sort of, you know, that's not, I'm not going to dwell on that. Well, some of you might be, this guy's really boring, I'm going to look at the trees, whatever the case may be. But that's what happens. So it's going through filters. Now some of the things you're going to go to will go to your immediate memory, which is about 30 seconds. It will be there, but then you'll throw that off the clipboard. Some of the stuff will go to your working memory, which will be there 20 to 40 minutes. And your body's saying, or your mind is saying, okay, what do I need to keep for later? to bring into your long-term memory or your self-concept with your cognitive belief system is all of this, which I would say is your world life view. And then your, what moves it from the working memory to this longer-term memory is they have to understand it. They have to make sense of what's said and they have to see meaning, relevance. And the more the child matures into adult learning, the more important meaning is. Relevance. Now, what happens is, this right here, then these lines, it filters back, or it goes back to affect these filters. Because all of a sudden, because of the experience, then this is going to change. Well. This is now important information for me. And I need to bring it in. 
or I need to move it from immediate to working. And then on that, then the other thing that happens is emotions affect process. How many of you have had students who said, oh, I went on that retreat and it was wonderful. I just remember all that you taught. Bang, 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 and they sort of give you everything. Anybody had that experience? No, you've been, you haven't? Well, you've got to have a more emotional experience. <laughs> because what happens is emotions, and it could be any emotions. Most of the time it's more positive emotions, love. Uh, where they feel accepted, they feel wanted, they have a good time, there's happiness. That helps move it to this more central, which becomes more of a shaping experience that affects things here. I talked to a person not too long ago. He's a student ministry worker down in South Florida. He says he uses humor a lot. Why? Because humor triggers an emotion of joy. And he says, when you get them to laugh with you, they are joining in with you. And there's a connection. And I would say, yeah, the emotions affect the processing and bring it farther in the Yes, ma'am? The student opposite is true, too. Like if they're really tired, really frustrated, they're not going to hear what you're exactly right. So how do we, I love that about humor, like facilitating mm-hmm. getting the message in. Mm-hmm. Um, any other tidbits on how to like shift our, our, our movie selves and our <laughs> Part of it is, it's, uh, part of it is to first recognize that's active. And you do have to make sort of a judgment call. You know, am I just going to, where's the child here? It might be they're, they're falling asleep and... You know, there have been situations where maybe you maybe you've been in a class or if you haven't been in a class, all right, everybody stand up. And it could be they're trying to wake everybody up. Uh, it could be in just a minute I'm gonna have y'all do something because you need to engage. Um, those types of things sort of stimulate. You're trying to break through these filters. And tiredness, uh, stress. Family stress will affect these filters. Why? Because everything happening here, it's not, it's shutting off everything. If they're under stress, or maybe they were, go back to what Adam was talking about, maybe something happened as they came in that room and they were, they were feeling shame. So shame is hitting here it's shutting, all these filters are just, nothing's getting in. Why? Because they're spending time in their own self. How do you get through that? It varies child by child. Most of the time, you're going to have to, if you can, your volunteer leaders can be sensitive to that and maybe go and sit with them, put the arm around them, whatever the case may be. A lot of times when you have a child acting out, there's a lot of things going on that, that's shutting down there, but not always, but that's affecting these filters where it's not coming in. Another thing is sometimes the filter for hearing will be boop, shut, but you might be able to get through it in some other ways. But what you need to learn is that as you're teaching, 
All five senses are engaged. If something happened and there was this horrible smell that came through this room right now, it would affect what I'm saying. It could make a horrible move. Yeah, whenever Stephen talked, it was really bad. <laughs> smelled like a skunk or something like that. Um, but it, see, the, but what happens is all of our senses are, are being triggered, but not all of them are being considered. And so that's what you keep in mind. Now, the problem is, especially in the PCA, we really emphasize here. Why did I give you these slides? It's because I want to somehow go here, too. Why do I tell you examples or illustrations? It's because I'm wanting to try to engage you to create an image which is a variation of sight. And if I were to say something, you know, imagine a meal where you were tasting something, or imagine an orange where you're tasting the orange. Now, as I'm describing it, your mind is going back there. It's not the same thing as tasting, but it's trying to trigger those aspects of your mind to get them to move, use that as leverage in the learning process. Y'all got it? All right, as you waited too long to, oh, there we go. Now this is another form of learning process. It's not the TDOE, but it's, it's TDOE is learning process over a long period of time. This is more what's happening in the moment of the teaching environment. So, this is especially adult learning theory, but as you're, again, you're taking students, they're moving into this. Every person comes into a learning environment with a steady state. Now, I asked you a question at the beginning. How many of you have a bachelor, master, or a PhD in education? Part of the reason why I asked that is to say, what are you bringing in? What's your, what's your educational baggage that you're bringing into this time together? Now, why would that be important for me as an instructor? Go ahead. You don't, why do you think it would be? There's no right or wrong answer. You, it's easier to get things you already know or are already taught. Yeah. If you already have things, then I can do that. Or I might say, hey, if everybody's down here, and I'm addressing you here, I've just set myself up for failure. Somebody back here, you had, yes? I mean, I don't know anything, so I'm going to believe whatever you tell me, but if I do stuff, I might be more skeptical. You might be more skeptical, you might be willing to push back. And so that's important for me as a teacher to know, right, what am I facing? So maybe you would push back, I could act defensively, or I could have some more uh, uh, emotional intelligence and be able to engage. Yes, sir. Um, so, like, if I'm teaching, I'm trying to question this to myself. Like, um, the way that I take things in and how they're integrated in my brain is going to be different than the way the students do. Mm -hmm. And so, the way that I parse that out is going to be reflected with how I take it in. So right. Well, and part of this, my challenge to you is you need to know your students. Where are they? What are they bringing in? Sometimes you do this as a, a 
it's called in education theory, it's called having a pre-lesson assessment. Hey, you got this. What are y'all thinking about this? Or give me your opinion if you want to do some current events. What did y'all hear in the news this week? Or what did what happened in sports? And so you're trying to figure out where they are. The reason is because you're you're going to teach them something and you're going to move around to where a situation reveals the inadequacy of the steady state. They came in with this, but you bring them to a situation where there's disequilibrium, where they realize, uh, I don't have the tools to get through this. It's bringing them to the point where they recognize their need. Now, they may not tell you that. Sometimes you'll be able to see it on their face. But that's what you're trying to do is bring in their vet. Here's the danger. If you create too much disequilibrium, it will despair. I can't get this. If it's too little, they'll say, this is irrelevant. I've heard this before. And so that's... That's the art of teaching. And here's the challenge, here's the problem in a challenge. Everybody's going to be in a different place. Alright, if everybody's going to be in a different place, what decision do you have to make in your educational experience? Either teach up or teach down. Teach down or, or where where's your target? Where's, where's the target? Yeah, where's the target is what you're trying to do. And alright, here let me give you freedom. You're going to miss. <laughs> All right? And Jesus still loves you. And Jesus will still use you. And so here's my prayer for you. And I encourage you to pray this, Lord. Well, approach every teaching opportunity as Lord, use me. Because here's the thing we can set the arena for disequilibrium. But it's the Holy Spirit that really does it in the area of discipleship. And so it's, it's where God is working through your efforts. And that's where you hold to, that's where grace comes in and teaches. And now you're going to move around as you create the disequilibrium. You're doing new information, showing how it's relevant, and they, they can grasp it. But then a change occurs so that they... They assimilate the information, they adapt, and then they end up at a new steady state. The problem is, when they reach the steady state, sometimes they're going to slip out of it as soon as they walk out the door. That happens. We're following people. But you're trying to keep moving it around and remember that crosser. Your hope is to move them down the path where they have a greater vision of God, a better understanding of themselves, and Christ gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what you're wanting to see in the transformation of your students. Now, learning styles. This is the sweet spot of how a person collects and processes information. Somebody's already mentioned this. You will tend to teach in the way you learn. And in our denomination, PCA, my denomination, lecture is what most people do. 
And yet, what's happening now, I was very impressed. Maybe you caught this with Walt Mueller. What did he have us do? Circle up, turn around. Circle up and turn around. What is that? What's happening there? What happens in that type of environment? Dialogue, discussion, collaboration, uh, refining of questions, issues, opinions. For those of you who are familiar with what's happening in elementary education, middle school education, especially college education these days, those group projects, collaborative projects, that's the way education is. The church is behind in that as we're trying to think through that. But you also have these modes, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. Visual, and all of us, this is how we take in information. We prefer some, how many of you like to watch a video, watch a YouTube, or listen to a book rather than reading a book? That's, there are different things. How many of you like to read while you're on a treadmill? You want to have the movement that's kinesthetic. You want it. Now, everybody's a mixture of all of them, but yet we usually favor one or the other. And those of you who know there is current educational theory being developed where people say, oh, it's a bunch of bunk. Um, I'm not there yet, as I've read. I think there's, this is still a helpful thing to you think, for you to think about. How do you begin to incorporate these things addressing the visual auditory kinesthetic. This is the one where you're getting people writing or moving. Somehow their bodies are involved. This, I am horrible at this as a teacher. Uh, this is an area I need to grow. Question? Comment? Alright, now learning styles. We'll get a little kinesthetic here. Four questions you need to bring to every lesson you're making. Why, what, so what, now what? Why, what, so what, now what? Why, what, so what, now what? Join with me. Why, what, so what, now what? Why, what, so what, now what? You just got involved. That's a little thing static. I would have had to jump up and down. Oscar's trying to stay awake back there. I appreciate you just standing up. So uh, he did that in my class all the time. So I'm I'm soothing to him. Why what? A why person? Why you're trying? Because you've got collaborative learners. You've got analytic learners. You've got common sense learners. You've got dynamic learners. Yes, these are broad strokes. These are big categories. But it helps you to sort of say, where are the people in my my group? They, the collaborative, these are more people-oriented, relationship-oriented. These are more facts-oriented. So why, what, so what, now what? Collaborative learners, what about them? They, they learn by listening to each other, sharing ideas. These are the people that love that. Split up into groups, let's talk about it. They want to know why. What, what's, why, do I, why is this important? Why am I learning this? They enjoy role-playing and simulation. Let's, let's act it out or something like that. They want to discuss rather than decide. And they're real big on relationships. They're the ones that want to, oh, how does so-and-so feel about this? Or what are they? And so 
That's where they want to be collaborative. They want the relational aspect of the educational uh, process. Analytic, these are the poster children for classrooms. Give me the information. Let me see it. Let me get it. I want information. I want you to present it logically. These are the engineers and lawyers. They want the facts, figures. Give me the Excel sheet, whatever. And they, they'll debate, but it better end at a point. Now, anybody want to guess what style I am? <laughs> I am a what? <laughs> I am an analytic person. I was in a meeting not too long ago, and um, oh, man, I was glad I was there. But it was one of these meetings of, let's just talk about the issue. And what are the problems out there? What are the categories? And it's like, finally I said, um, what are our takeaways? Because we were just flying the plane, and I wanted to land the plane. And that's where, really, the common sense people, they're the so what. Have you noticed in Richie's, what, how is Richie's three points? What's always the third point of this sermon? So what? It's application. Can the content be used in real life today? How is it practical? How is this going to change me? And if it's only theory or ambiguity or let's just talk, it's not let's come up with something, then they get frustrated. And so as you're developing a, a lesson, you want to say, why is this important? Let's talk about it. Maybe what, what happened? And you're trying to get their feelings about whatever the topic is. In, that you're covering. So you look at your, here's your text, or your, and what's the theme, sort of what is some story behind the theme, maybe you could tell an illustrative story, and trying to appeal to the emotions that somebody, that gets to that collaborative learner, because, oh yeah, okay, we're in here, we're relating, and then you give, here's what the text says, blah, 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 blah. Then the so what person, okay, well what does it mean? How am I supposed to change? That's the so what. And then finally, you've got the now what. This is the dynamic person. They want to say, all right, yeah, okay, here's the information. Here's what I should do with it. But there's a, but what about these other areas? They want to build on it. They can deal with ambiguity, but they it's more in the area of, okay, I want to dream about all the ways this information can be applied and used. All the different situations. That's what the dynamic learner wants to take it beyond just the moment. Sometimes you can do this through small group questions, or it could be conversations after, like one-on-one -on -one type things. But that's how you appeal to all those different learning styles. I'll close with this. As you are a teacher, a disciple maker, always be careful of the challenge of the expert. Preachers, we are horrible at this. Because we spend all week studying through a passage. We get so excited about it. And we can't wait to tell people about it. And then we just dump on it. And we lose touch 
with what's easy or difficult. Going back to that idea of disequilibrium, we lose touch with what's too much and leads people to despair. Now, how do you combat that? You have to know your people. Again, we want discipleship that is word-based and relationally driven. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe our doctrine. The word is powerful. The word changes. But what we want to do is use the word as a scalpel rather than a blanch. And the way we present the word with precision is we understand the people, their needs, their hopes, their desires. And we, then we bring the word to bear on that need and desire. That's the relational component. Those of you who are the expert, sometimes you can lose sight of where your people are. This flows into this next one, understand and adapt to the needs of the learners. Here's another thing I want you to read with me. The greatest enemy of understanding is coverage. Repeat. The greatest enemy of understanding is coverage. Again, the greatest enemy of understanding is coverage. Now I've had you repeat it. What does it mean? Oscar, get ready because I'm going to call on you if you don't answer. Ben, you probably had this in seminary. What does it mean? Uh, the ability or the feeling that you have to cover everything and then you end up not going in depth at all and, and convoluting everything because you're trying to cover how many of you just feel horrible if you don't get through your lesson plan? Why? Because I want the students to leave with an absolutely massive amount of knowledge so I can feel good about this. You can feel good about yourself. Well, ask them. The greatest enemy of understanding is cover. That's right. Amen. <laughs> this, this is hard for me. That's, I have to repeat it all. Donald Guthrie, one of my mentors, uh, teaches education up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's the first one to introduce me to this because uh, I have intentionally, I have more slides than I'm going to cover. Why? Because I need to learn this. I want you to understand more than I want to cover my this. And sometimes, you know, don't be afraid if if it goes beyond. And this is where we really have, I mean, we have to be faithful. We have to present. We don't need to waste time. But you might have to go down a rabbit trail because there's a need. And then, as long as you're keeping in mind, I'm trying to bring the word to bear on that need. If there's a growth in understanding, that's a win. More than you saying, finish that lesson plan. Understanding is more important than coverage. Discipleship comes through understanding, not necessarily through coverage. Nurture the two-way communication and remember that managing disequilibrium. Too much leads to despair. Too little leads to irrelevance.
All right, four, past 4.15, thank you very much, everybody. Y'all been a great group. You participated. You Only Oscar fell asleep, so we're doing good. It was like for two seconds. Oh, that's all right. All right, let me pray for us. Father, I do pray for these your servants. Thank you for their attentiveness in this time. Lord, I do pray for them as they now go back and, Lord, shape them as they're teaching Lord, I pray that you will give them eyes to see the students in their ministry. You will give them eyes to see the parents in their ministry. You will give them a soft heart to understand the needs. And then, Lord Jesus, be faithful to use them to bear fruit for your glory. For we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.